Coming up on this week's episode of TechSnap. We get depressed over some new stats confirming our worst fears about the huge number of outdated and unpatched Android systems. But in some good news, GitHub wants to help you and your open source projects stay secure with their new security alerts feature. We discuss and debate what it needs to be relevant. Plus, some handy tips for getting out of a sticky situation in Git, a net neutrality PSA, and some big news from Dan. And of course, we've got your fantastic feedback, a righteous roundup, and so much more on this week's episode of TechSnap. Welcome to TechSnap, Jupiter Broadcasting's weekly systems, network, and administration podcast. This is episode 346 for November 20th, 2017. This show is brought to you by our three excellent sponsors, DigitalOcean, Ting, and IX Systems. My name is Wes, and joining me once again is our friend, Dan. Welcome to the show, Dan. Wonderful to have you back. <laughs> Thank you, Wes. How you doing? Oh, I'm doing just splendidly. It's a rainy morning here in the Pacific Northwest, but uh, hey, what better than to <sighs> do some tech snap? How are you doing? It was chilly this morning. I'm still cold. I should have had oatmeal or something when I got back from my walk. I'm yes, you should not have. Really full, not really fully warmed up yet. Well, why don't we just get this show off to a off to a start? Mm-hmm. It sounds like you've got a public yes. service announcement for everyone. I do. I am sure that every single one of our listeners, every single one, everyone knows about everyone, <laughs> every single one knows about net neutrality and why it's important. Now, allegedly, rumor has it that the FCC is going to uh, come up for a vote or the rules are going to come up for a vote this Wednesday. And for listeners overseas, this Wednesday is the Wednesday before Thanksgiving. And basically, nothing will get done on Thursday and Friday in most of the U.S., except for shopping. Um, Right. Not to discount shopping. Not to discount shopping, because a lot of our listeners do survive on shopping. This is right. Um, the 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 most uh, the most humorous thing I saw about what will net neutrality mean for most of you? Well, your porn sites could get more expensive. Now that's humor, and that's funny to some of you, but really there are a lot of things that can go wrong if they allow net neutrality to come in. And there's been a few posts. Well, if they allow net neutrality to go away, net neutrality already exists. Some of you may say, well, what the hell is net neutrality? Net neutrality is is the, the convention that all the traffic coming down your pipe to your laptop is the same. It's all the same. It's all treated the same. And your ISP does not distinguish between them. In effect, your ISP is providing bandwidth to you and allowing the the traffic to flow as it flows. Now, if you take away the concept or or the um, what's a better word for it? It's not really a concept. It's a situation. It's a it, it, it's it, it's the way that the the ISPs. Tr- D- decide whether or not to filter or charge premiums for for what you might want to see. Now, there there is nothing preventing an ISP without net neutrality rules from saying, "Hey, listen, we're going to charge you more for 
Facebook and Google, but we're not going to charge you so much for uh, Mastodon or Bing. And that may be just because they like Mastodon and Bing or because Mastodon and Bing have paid them to give right. give you better traffic to there. Um, I know I'm not making a lot of sense <laughs> with that example, but without net neutrality, the internet could easily be very, very different from what we see it as now. The free exchange of ideas and, and data and ISPs not mucking about with it. Now, a lot of them will say, oh, listen, we have to be able to shape the traffic and be able to do this and that. Well, yes, they can still right. shape traffic within the existing rules. They, they don't need net neutrality to go away in order to do that. Yeah, they're already allowed to have reasonable operations to ensure the service of their product and, and you know, delivery of timely delivery of packets and, and all of that. And mm -hmm. this is this is much mm -hmm. more about, you know, the philosophy of how it how it's implemented, the relationships they have and how that benefits. I mean, here just at JB, we're concerned about it as a small time player in the video streaming marketplace. Uh, you know, there's a lot of places that want to have deals with YouTube, etc. And if you don't pay for YouTube... It's discounted from your bandwidth costs, or our traffic is suddenly way more expensive to, to go to JB. Well, you, you might just not do that, and th that's very different than the internet, the open, exploratory internet mm -hmm. that we've come to know and love. Mm -hmm. um, Comcast was it Comcast or Verizon? One of the two was uh, uh, going at loggerheads with Netflix, saying, "Oh no, listen, there's so much traffic." coming from Netflix that, uh, you know, we've got, we've got to charge more for, for Netflix or Netflix has to start paying us to make up for all this bandwidth. Well, that, that's just them going for more money and they're trying to become dominant. Not to mention that Netflix and Comcast are both video providers. Yeah, they sure are. And therefore, they? not only are they delivering the bandwidth to you, they're also delivering the content to you. And in my opinion, that's a conflict of interest. You can't both be a provider and a transporter without at least coming under scrutiny for conflicts of interest. Yeah, and we've already if gotten so far away from this, you know, the the idea of a of a dumb pipe. We really don't need to get any farther away. You know, the the mainstream ISPs, as, as you're saying, they're already dabbling in all kinds of other business models and markets. And it's not just, a, hey, I would like some internet, please. Uh, don't get in the way yep. and we'll be fine. Yep. If we can get to yep. that, that would be amazing. More like you would see in some business style contracts almost. Now... There's there's a whole lot of fear and uncertainty and doubt that the that the ISPs and the big ISPs are spending big money on this. You're not seeing the little ISPs, you know, oh, yeah. lob, lobbying Congress to do this. It's the big ISPs who have vested vested interests in being able to repeal net neutrality. Uh, I'm still looking for a better word. It. it I don't really know how to des describe the net neutrality convention. Maybe it's a convention. It's not really a convention. But anyway, um, you can see how confused I am about how to describe it. There are a lot of, a lot of things that you can do in order to become more aware about the issues around it. One of them is a subreddit on Reddit called R Net Neutrality. So go and have a look at that. That's in the show notes. Um, there's also an article in the show notes uh, from Hacker News about what you can do to help 
net neutrality. And it, it, it's very easy to do something about it. You Please write your representative, your senator, or your governor with a message indicating that you support net neutrality rules and not to get rid of them. Um, it's much better if you send a letter, like put pen to paper, put it in an envelope, stamp it, and send it away. That has much more effect than an email or a fax. So try, try and do that if you can, please. Um, all of us on, on this show and you listening have a vested interest in not changing the rules. It will not go well for any of us. So please have a look, look at the links in the show notes. Go and do something about it. Um, talk to your representatives. Let them know how you feel. And hopefully we can avoid this really bad idea from becoming policy. Exactly. Well said, Dan. Uh, well, we'll see, I guess. Uh, next time on the TechSnap program, we'll have either good or disappointing news, as yes. is more commonly the case for this uh, morose, at times, program of ours. But let's move on to maybe some good news for security and for all of us, at least if you use GitHub. Over at GitHub, mm -hmm. they're now introducing security alerts. What, are they, what does this mean, Dan? Well, the security alerts are based on you first indicating what software dependencies your project has. And then if a security issue is raised in one of your dependencies, it'll be brought up on your project so that you know and you can do something about it. Um, it very much reminds me of the uh, VU XML project on FreeBSG. And basically, in the FreeBSD ports infrastructure, when you have a dependency, you list it explicitly so that when I go to install Bacula client, for example, uh, sorry, Bacula server, it will install one of the databases that you select, like Postgres or MySQL. And because of that known link, you can see that there's a vulnerability and you can act upon it. And it's just basically... We'll, we'll not, they will notify you when they detect a vulnerability in one of the dependencies, and they also suggest known fixes from the GitHub community. It's just a better way of making sure that when vulnerabilities are found, people get notified of it, and they can patch their shit. Um, basically, if you like using Project X, and one of the dependencies of Project X has a vulnerability in it, you'll know and you be able to get it fixed. Uh, on FreeBSD, this sort of has a, a limited use. It's it's an additional layer, right. but it's sort of duplicated by the VUXML um, database. Yeah, and a lot of a lot of other you know operating systems and similar have have pack have ways or RSS notifications or email lists or similar to you know let you know when CVEs are posted about mm -hmm. their packages. So far, it looks like GitHub, they've, they've implemented some dependency tracking features, so far only for JavaScript and Ruby, mm -hmm. but they'll go in and parse your package.jsons or your, your gem files, go see what things your project relies on. So it seems pretty handy for a lot of open source software, as yeah. well as just people who you know are using GitHub as their base, and then 
a lot of times it makes it, you know, it's pretty, you're in a position where it's pretty easy to package or patch your base OS when something happens. But a lot of times you're then running some software. Maybe you've compiled it yourself from just some assembled dependencies and you're like, well, how do I know when one of these things has a problem? Will I even know? Or I'm just going to sit here not, you know, even if you want a patch and that's already a happy path, mm -hmm. then you don't always have the tools. There are already some proprietary, some offer some free plan services to go try to track these these things for you. But it's handy to see that GitHub's doing it right out in the open. I hope they add more languages soon, you know, things like Java, Python, other things that are popular out there. But this is a great start. Uh, <coughs> pardon me. I wonder how they handle things that are not hosted on GitHub. Like, for example, PHP or Perl. I'm assuming they're not handled on, they're, they're not listed on GitHub. But how do you specify dependencies on things that are not hosted on GitHub? Because I, I don't actually use a lot of software that's dependent upon other software in GitHub, I think, at least as far as I know. I think they would have to have support for that language. And then once they did, they would have enabled ways to track those dependencies. So they would be able to parse mm -hmm. whatever Perl method that you listed your dependencies for. And then they would go check with the upstream sources. I'm not 100% though. We'll have to dig into that a little bit more, more deeply. Yeah. Um, it's all pretty new stuff over it, GitHub. I'm curious yes. to see if it makes it to GitHub Enterprise as well, because I know there's a lot of a lot of companies out there that have private installations of GitHub, and this seems like it'd be pretty helpful mm -hmm. for private software as well. Yes, yes. We use it at work. I didn't think about <laughs> it using it at work. Yeah, right. Just uh, like especially when you're just pulling in open source is more and more popular. Um, yep. And while that's great, you also still need to think about what what is your security position and how can you how can you patch when you're able to. <clears throat> Pardon me, I don't know why I'm coughing so much today. Yes, they've got JSON, the support for JSON and uh, what was it, manifest files. Um, it, it's a start. They had to start somewhere. They couldn't just go full tilt with everything. But yeah, this is a very good start. I, I like it. Yeah, excellent. All right, well, more to come. Uh, do let us know if you're using that feature, if you plan to use it, or if it changes any of the security posture or, or operations for the, your company, startup, or etc. cetera. Uh, I think I'll be very curious to play with it in the future. And it's nice to see them helping out, trying to make things a little bit more secure in the, in the world of ours. Um, you might have heard about how good a job FreeBSD does with this, and now you're curious, hmm, how do I get started with FreeBSD? Well, there's a really good option, and that's tonight's first sponsor, IX Systems. Our friends over at IX are just incredible. They have some of the nicest, most well-made hardware you're just ever going to find. So maybe, maybe you've been listening to Dan, and you really should, trust me on that one, and you're ready to get serious about your backups. If that's the case, head on over to ixsystems.com slash techsnap and go check out the FreeNAS Mini. This thing is awesome. They've got a learn more button right on the homepage. It's easy to get started. Look at that. Isn't that pretty? You can add up to eight storage drives for maximum capacity right there, right there. Super easy to use their hot swap chassis support, multiple RAID options for you. They got a great GUI. It runs with FreeNAS open source software that IX develops. So you know that it's like going to be supported. If you ever want to move off IX hardware, you can do that. You can make it your own. But why would you when you get all the training years of experience building stable, reliable storage systems that IX has. They partner with great people, people like Intel and their incredible Intel processors, all kinds of upstream vendors, OEMs, the like that, you know, they build these long-term relationships so you don't have to. You can just call up IX, tell them about your problem, 
Let them help you get started, help you explore the problem space. And that's another way that they really add value. They've got these white glove sales engineers standing by, ready to talk with you, consult about your problems. Whether it's just, you know, getting proper backups going for your two small offices, or it's building a new SAN for your new data center. Like, it, it just doesn't matter. They've been there. They've seen it all. They have clients of all sizes. Go go back to their homepage. Check this out. They've got people like Sony, Disney, Evernote, NASA, UC Berkeley, Splunk, Mozilla, Adobe, GM, all kinds of aerospace and scientific corporations, people with big data needs know that IX is the place to be, especially if you need anything custom. If you're tired of looking at catalogs or browsing through really crappy online sites trying to find the right rack-mounted server, oh, is this going to be the right size? Does the motherboard fit? How many graphics card can I get in there in this chassis? And what's the power utilization that I'm going to need to provide to it? All of these are questions that maybe you know. But probably you don't. And if you don't want to have to, you know, gamble your next purchase on, on your expertise, go to IX Systems. Go check them out. You can, get, you can talk to them online. You can email them. But really, just give them a call. That's a great way to get started. And if you want to just learn more about IX, their blog is a great place to start. They've got a, all kinds of social media presence. And they're always at all the coolest conferences that I wish I was going to. You know, uh, things like LISA, the Large Installation System Administration Conference, where they've that conference always has a ton of great talks from experienced system administrators, people building large systems for usually scientific or other really important enterprise-scale work. Or before that, they were just at the Open ZFS Summit, right? IX runs a bunch of ZFS. They really understand that it's the file system if you want serious storage. And it shows because they contribute and they're an active member of the community. That's just one more reason if you have any needs, you're looking for new hardware, new servers, new storage solutions, IX is the first place to look. Head on over to ixsystems.com slash techsnap to get started. And thank you to ixsystems for sponsoring the TechSnap program. Okay, with that, we can move right along on today's show. Oh, back to something depressing, but probably not so surprising. Turns out there's a lot of out-of-date Android devices out there. Yeah, and I'm afraid we're going to upset some people and we're going to get angry emails about, oh, that can't be true. That's not true. That's not true at all. Um, basically, the long and short of it is Android devices don't get updated as much as Apple devices. And they're claiming that there's something like over a billion outdated Android devices in use at the moment. Uh, some of the very controversial things they say is it's common knowledge that Android devices tend to be more out of date than iOS devices. But what does that actually mean? Now, how they've done this is it's very difficult to gather information. So what they're doing is they are scraping Google Play Store market share information. That data shows market share of devices that have visited the Play Store in the last seven days. In general, it seems reasonable to believe that devices that visit the Play Store are more up-to-date than devices that don't. Yeah. So we would expect an unknown amount of bias in this data that causes the graph to show that devices are newer than they actually are. This seems plausible both for devices that are used as conventional, mo conventional mobile devices as well as for mobile devices that have replaced things like traditionally embedded devices, point-of-sales boxes, etc. So they've got some very interesting graphs. And what the graphs tend to indicate is you're, you, you've got this particular release of 
uh, of an Android OS. And over time, the number of devices running that version decreases. And so the graph goes down, 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 and trends towards zero as time goes on. Now, what they're using here is API version data for this because okay. they don't actually they don't actually have access to the market share of re point releases and minor updates. So that what they're doing is they're assuming that all devices on the same API version are up to date until the moment a new API version is released. But many and perhaps most devices won't receive updates within an API version. So it's getting it's sounding kind of complex, but but bear with us because they do seem to have some very interesting data. Um, one of the things that they start talking about is um, people sometimes compare Android to Windows XP because there's a large number of both in the wild, and in both cases, most devices do not get security updates. However, they claim that this is tremendously unfair to Windows XP because, come on, Admit it. We all love Windows XP. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Which was released in October 2001, and it received security updates until April 2014, which was 12 and a half years later. So it, there was a long-standing run of updates. But if we look at the newest Android release, 8.0, from August 2017, it looks like you're quite lucky if you have a two-year-old device that will get the latest update. What they're saying is that this update can't be installed on anything. Well, it's unlikely that it can be installed on devices that are more than two years old. The latest Google phone supported is the Nexus 6P, which is from August, September 2015, yep. giving it just under two years of support. Um, but what they're saying is that even with the data that they have, they can take a guess at how many outdated devices are in use. In May 2017, Google announced that there were over 2 billion active Android devices. And if they look at the latest stats, the far right edge of the graph, we can see that nearly half of these devices are two years out of date. At this point, we should expect there, that there are more than one billion devices that are two years out of date. Given Android's update model, we should expect a, approximately 0%, that's none, of those devices to ever get updated to a modern version of Android. And that, that's scary. A billion devices out there. Now, I was about to say, are all of the, you know, are they including all devices ever sold? But no, it's, it's quite clear here. Google announced that there are over 2 billion active Android devices. Not sold, but active. So if half of them are never going to get updated, that's a billion devices with outdated versions of the software installed on it and no chance for them to be upgraded. Wow. I, I'd, I'd say that's a big attack vector. Yeah. Well, no, it, I mean, yeah, it certainly uh, is. Not necessarily that there's a lot, lot, lot of places they can attack, but that's a lot of software. Uh, so, uh, that's a lot of hardware that's never going to get updated. 
Yeah, that, that is certainly true. And it's, you know, it just, there, there were a lot of strengths, I think, to the way Android launched, especially when they're trying to play catch up with mm-hmm. iOS, you know, so they did enable mm-hmm. this sort of open source upstream and then a bunch of other vendors handling all the, you know, the interactions with the consumer, that sort of pipeline, getting the systems on a chip that they want, bundling that all together, creating the consumable product and then supporting it. But what really what we've seen is that they aren't so interested in that end of life cycle step, right? I mean, and a lot of businesses aren't. It's not something that a lot of companies really excel at. But so we shouldn't really be surprised that they don't in this space either. And so you end up with these companies that, you know, you ship phones and yeah, about two years is the lifetime you expect, no matter if you've bought, you know, a $150 phone or a $700 phone. That's just, and then even like Google's yep. one of the best about ensuring, at least in the Android side, ensuring that you do get updates when they're available. But even as you're, as we're seeing right here, like even they, you know, you you still can't go back more than like two, two and a half years in most cases and get updates without having to go out of band or, you know, flash some alternative firmware. And then there's there's other associated risks there as well. So that's really not a great, there's not a lot of great options. Android has done, uh, you know, some work. They're trying to enable some more um, base layers to enable better firmware, better abstractions away on the system on a chip level to try to get a little updates a little more easier without having to wait for system on a chip vendors to have all the right things in place so that it's a little more abstracted. But we haven't seen, you know, actual implications of that. It's all very new. So none of that's really reached the market yet. Whether that changes in the next couple of years, whether their project Fuchsia goes anywhere and becomes the new base of Android and has better options, mm-hmm. we'll have to wait and see there. But right now, there's just a lot of devices out there. Um, they were contrasting. Uh, iOS 11 was released two months ago. Right. And it now has just under 50% of the iOS market share, despite November's numbers coming in before the release of the iPhone X. And that's compared to less than 1% for the latest Android version, which was released in August. Wow. So longer time, more devices, less take up. Yep. So it's uh, so that they're saying it's overwhelmingly likely that by the start of ne- next year, which is a couple of months away, iOS 11 will have more than 50% market share of iOS devices and there's an outside chance that it'll have 75%. It's unlikely that the corresponding plot for iOS would have the 50% tile red line that they're talking about, but it's not implausible that they'll hit 75%. As is the case with Android, there are some older devices that stubbornly refuse to update. iOS 9.3, released a bit over two years ago, sits at just a bit above 5%. It's interesting that that a a version of iOS two years ago is only on about 5% of the devices still out there. I'm not actually sure what version of iOS I have on this old phone, which is an... um, I didn't know you uh, had an Android phone lurking around there. No, 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 no. Oh, that's no, an sorry. iOS phone. Got yeah, it. Yeah. I misheard. Yep. Um, I, I I have owned iOS phones. Sorry, uh, Android phones. I think I've had two. Um, this one is uh, an iPhone six. There's an iPhone five out in the living room, I think, and I don't know what version either one has on it. This one won't even power on at the moment. Dead battery. Well, that sounds secure then. I mean. You're, you're it, in, the, in the clear there. It'll be fine, right, though? Yeah, exactly. Um, but I do have an original um, iPad sitting here, and that does get updated. Uh, I use it as an audio controller. <laughs> <laughs> nice. Hey, there you go. That works. Yeah, I mean, you know, uh, 
I'm I'm not very invested personally in the in the Apple ecosystem, but I do envy a lot of the things, you know, having that single supplier tight control of mm. all the hardware and phones that they've made kind of reigning from the top with this iron fist of you will get updates we will provide reasonable support you just have to make sure you do think follow our way um yeah. there, there's a lot of advantages there and i, I definitely see that it, it, it it's two different approaches one is we're going to give you the freedom to do whatever you need to do and the other approach is we're going to take more control because we think that's better and they're both perfectly valid approaches yeah and and figuring out how to make them both work in the real world i think is something we'll have to continue to watch Yes. All right. Well, uh, maybe now you're thinking about switching over to iOS or you're thinking, oh, man, iOS. Yeah, it's great. But I still really want that latest Android phone. Either way, you'll be just fine if you head on over to techsnap.ting.com, our next sponsor this evening. Ting, it's mobile. That makes sense. What, do, what the heck do we mean by that? Because we say that a lot. Well, just head on over to the rates page. I'll explain it. Let's just break this down for you. First, you need, you need a phone, right? Okay, so you can bring your own device or you can head to their shop and pick up a device. When you go to techsnap.ding.com, you'll get a $25 service credit after you sign up. So that'll help in either case. Then you're going to need a line, right? You got to activate this thing. That's just $6 a month. You have two lines, $12. You have three lines, $18. And you can just click here in these little fancy boxes at, at their rates page and play with this yourself. Then... Figure out how many minutes you need. Now, you don't have to think about this ahead of time. There are no contracts or anything like that. There's no buckets or, or like, uh, caps that you're going to run into. Now, Ting's just trying to explain, like, however much you use, that's how much you pay. If you only use 100 or less minutes a month, that's $3 in that there bucket. And I don't really need three lines, so I'm just going to drop that down to one. Each line, $6. However many minutes you need. If you use, you know, not too many, you won't pay very much. Text messages? Well, I don't use any text messages because, come on, guys, I'm on Signal or Telegram or any of the other things that just, you know, use Wi-Fi and, and, and data. All right. But everyone needs data, even if you're savvy, even if you've got Wi-Fi at home and at work and on the bus and everywhere else in your life, you're still sometimes at the grocery store and you really need to look up that last ingredient for the dinner you're planning or whatever it is. Maybe you're just sitting waiting in line somewhere and you want something to do. You don't want to have to talk to the stranger next to you. Data, that's where data comes in. If you're like me, you probably don't have to use too much, though, because we live in the modern world after all. So maybe you use about a gig a month. All that just gets tallied up, whichever bucket you happen to fall into. Ting does the math for you, don't worry. For me, that would be a monthly bill of about $25 a month. Now, there will be some taxes and fees and other things that will vary by your locality. Ting can't do anything about that. They would love to, I'm sure, if they could, but they can't. You're just going to have to accept it. But $25 a month. And here's the other part. Like, this isn't some plan where I don't get all the features you want. It has tethering, three-way calling, voicemail, all the standard things you get from any other phone package. And if you need to use more, there's no overage charges. There's no, like, violating contracts. If you want to leave, just stop, you know, cancel your plan, stop paying. There's no early termination fees, anything crazy. If you need to use more, just use more. Sure, you'll pay more, but you only pay for what you use. It's not like you have to buy another five gigs of data, even if you only need one more gig. No, use exactly how much you need. Like an adult, Ting will charge you for what you use. It's simple. It's easy to estimate. And I think like, you know, like a lot of people, sometimes you have a little bit long, a, a more data month. Maybe you're traveling, visiting family or friends. That's fine. You just use however much you need. And then when you're back home, your bill goes back down and it all compensates and it's almost guaranteed to be less than whatever you're paying now with one of the big boy companies. 
Ting resells, they've got both GSM and CDMA. So instead of having to worry about like building all these cell networks and digging cables into the ground and setting up towers, they concentrate on incredible customer service. They've got an amazing dashboard, great mobile app. You can do pretty much anything you would normally have to call up a company to do. You can do them right there without having to. And if you do need to call, they've got friendly humans to talk to you. They're just super nice. They really love what they do and they want to help you out. Don't forget, you can go to the BYOD page, check the IMEI of a device to see if it works, or if you want to use that service credit towards a new phone, hey, look at that. SIM cards are just $9, and they've got that brand new, super shiny Apple iPhone 10. Go pick that up. They've got financing available if you need it. It's not some sort of sneaky, snuck into the contract thing. They're right out in the clear and explicit about it, and that's just one more reason to go check out techsnap.ting.com. And thank you to Ting for sponsoring the TechSnap program. Okay, Mr. Dan, what do you have for us now? I hope it's not another depressing story about the lack of security in this world. Oh. Okay. Oh. Oh, I wasn't. Okay, you actually you actually yeah, have yeah. something here. Okay, yeah, I was yeah, I was yeah, just yeah, being a jerk yeah. and facetious, yeah, but Yep. Yeah, yep. Yeah. Just for you. Oh. Just just for you. Um K88 Hudson on GitHub has come up with Git flight rules. And I had no idea what this was. Yeah, what, are, what are flight oh, rules? A guide for astronauts, now programmers using Git, about what to do when things go wrong. Flight rules are the hard-earned body of knowledge recorded in manuals that list step-by-step step what to do if X occurs and Y. Essentially, they are extremely detailed, scenario-specific, standard operating procedures. NASA has been capturing our missteps, disasters, and solutions since the early 1960s when Mercury-era ground teams first started gathering lessons learned into a compendium that now lists thousands of problematic situations from engine failure to busted hatch handles to computer glitches and their solutions. And this is a... Uh, something that Chris Hadfield wrote in An Astronaut's Guide to Life. Chris Hadfield being the Canadian astronaut yes. who did the, what was the song? Uh, uh, Major Tom? Yeah. He, he did the, oh, I forget the name of the song, but he did that YouTube video. He took the guitar up with him. He did a YouTube video from the International Space Station and it, it was... I can't remember the name of the song, but anyway. Space Oddity. Space Oddity. Thank you. So that little bit is is what he wrote. But then the rest of this, which is all listed in the readme.md, is uh, very interesting. It, it's things like, I wrote the wrong thing in a commit message, and I've had to Google this so many times about when I, when I wanted to amend my commit message. For those of you that have never used Git, what you can do is you can... You can make modifications in your local working copy, then commit them. And they're just committed locally. And you can do a lot of committing locally. And it's all just your local version until you push it up to the master. And up until the time you push it to the master, it's very easy to change things locally so people don't see all the ugly stuff that you did. Right. That's part of the advantage of it being a distributed version control system. Yes. So how do I change the, the, the commit message? It tells you, um, I want to delete or remove my last commit. And really, that's not a good thing to do. If you haven't pushed it, 
very simple fix. But if you have pushed it, they recommend, in short, if you're not sure, you should never do this ever, huh. basically. So don't, don't do it. Um, staging, uh, unstaged edits. Like sometimes you've made some changes locally and then you're, you, you want to do a poll to bring down the work that everyone else has done. What do you do with your unstaged edits? They've got, they've got this concept of a stash and how you do them. And, and sometimes, yes, you, you pull stuff from or push stuff into the wrong branch and how do you fix that? And I want to discard my local commit so that my branch is the same as on the server. What do I do? And, oh, my God, I committed to branch instead of uh, – I committed to master instead of a new branch. Oh, no. And, and they've got the list here. And what you do is you just create a new branch while remaining on the master. Then you reset the branch master to the previous commit. And then you do a git reset hard and change it over, and then you check out to the new branch and continue working. Hopefully, this is all very straightforward when you're under pressure. Um, but this, I think, is like a git commit, uh, a git uh, cheat sheet. Uh, speaking of git commit, have you heard of a book called Git Commit Murder? No, I have not. I think you should read it. So this is a book recommendation for, uh, it's for us book, here on the TechSnapper. It, 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 it's like a it. book recommendation. You do this more. It has nothing to do with using Git. So it's not a, like a version control based thriller novel. That's kind of what it I is, got me hoping for. It, it, it is a murder mystery. Okay. Okay. Well, I'm I'm still interested. Held at a fictional conference. Okay. Hmm. With characters that everyone will probably recognize if they've ever been to a conference that I've been to. <laughs> awesome. Okay. Well, great. I will. But it's definitely not my conference. No, certainly wouldn't be. No, not at all. Not my conference. Nope. So anyway, back here. Then it gets into stuff that I've never, ever wanted to do, which like rebasing and merging. I've never wanted to do that. It just sounds horrible. But stashing. Stashing sounds very interesting. Um Basically, I know I've been working and doing stuff and saying, oh, okay, I better save this. I, I have to work on something else. And so you do a git stash. And you can just stash one file and you can stash. <laughs> Pardon me. <coughs> Pardon. You can stash and, and save a message and stuff like that. There's just a lot of stuff in here that I have never done and some of which I never want to do. But it's nice to know where I can go to find out. There's just so many commands in git I don't expect everyone to know. All I do is really git, git add, git commit, git push, git pull. That's about all I ever do. I think my favorite section is the one at the bottom where uh, titled, I have no idea what I did wrong. So, so you're screwed. You reset something or you merged the wrong branch or you force pushed and now you can't find your commits. You know, at some point... You were doing all right, and you want to go back to some state you were at. Like, I think that is definitely a sentiment new mm -hmm. users to Git have run into. And Git's one of these funny things where it's conceptually, it's actually pretty simple at its at its core. Um, but due to some of the quirks with the tooling and just like 
sometimes the nature of distributed version control with multiple people working on multiple different branches and, and parts of a project, like you can get into some situations where if you venture into uncharted waters and you're not very well versed, or as this talks about, like maybe you're moving too fast, hmm. you're trying to get this deploy out the door, you're just trying to get these commits pushed so that the build system will see them. You can definitely find yourself in some strange places. And if you don't have a solid understanding of, you know, what's actually happening underneath and the Git internals, it can be pretty hard to reason about. Uh, there are some nice graphical tools that exist to try to understand some of the like, what's happened with all my branches and where they at. But this is like a really nice guide. I, I think this is great for especially like you can be a software developer or sysadmin or anything else and not be a Git expert, like you're saying, mm. a lot of times in most workflows on small teams or on simple projects, like you just need a few of the commands. That's all you'll ever do. And that makes it all the worse when you run into one of these complicated situations because you just don't have a lot of experience to rely on. So this seems like something I'm definitely going to keep in my back pocket. And as you're saying, there's a ton of stuff in here that thankfully I haven't run into, but now, <laughs> now I know where to look. Um, I'm only just learning interesting things it can do with subversion. Oh, okay, uh, yeah. So, some things about subversion, like copying from here to there and creating uh, new revisions and branches and stuff like that. It's just a copy. Um, and you can create tags and stuff like that. Like, for example, if you have, um, I know we're getting off the, the side off of Git, but. You just keep on going, Dan. This will be fine. Um, Say you've got some software in Subversion and you want to make part of this project this tag and, and, and do this release. You want to make this other little bit this other tag and do this release. Well, it's easy enough to just do an SVN copy from here over to there with that tag and then do an SVN copy from here over to there with a different tag, all within the same project. It was one of the things that someone, someone told me that that is one of the the strengths of subversion that didn't really get copied over into Git. And I'm, I've wound up doing that for um, a lot of the fresh port stuff that I've done recently. A few weeks ago, I said that I was packaging the, the, the source code behind fresh ports to do oh, updates and stuff like that. Yeah, right. And so that's that subversion copy and stuff like that is what I wound up using. And I, it made that bit a lot easier. I didn't want to have to export and import and stuff like that. SVN copy is all I needed. Hey, that's anyway, actually super handy. Yeah, totally. Back, back, back to this. So, yeah. Um, I suggest that if you use Git, or if you plan to, remember this one. Rem remember flight rules for Git, and you'll be able to find this later. Yeah, exactly. So, uh, you know, maybe a good handy thing there is just think about fight or flight, and uh, when you're ready to, to, to go with mm. the flight stage and just mm. run away from your workstation, mm. maybe you're going to mm -hmm. lunch, go find this guide. Uh, I do see they've got a bunch of the, the GUI clients I was talking about at the bottom, as Ooh. well as a link to a bunch of scripts, tools, tutorials, some of the great Git documentation, some of the books, ProGit in, in particular, I've, I've read a big chunk of, which is an excellent book. So go check these out. Even if you don't need any of these things, if you just want to bone up on Git, get better with Git. Uh, it's used all over the place. So... Uh, Definitely a useful use of time. Are, are you using any uh, uh, GUIs for Git? Uh, you know, I know of a number of people using Git Kraken. I haven't been using it currently. Um, I know Magit, or Magit uh, which is an interface to Git as Emacs. I've used that a little bit, and it's pretty handy. I've also used, I don't see it on here, but it was a, I think it's called UnGit, and it was a node... 
it was written in Node, but it was a like an interactive browser GUI that would let you both view in a very nice layout all of your commits and the, the branch structure, but also let you modify it if you were if you wanted to. You'll have to find that and add it to the show notes. Yeah, I, I'm not not sure what I'd use the GUI side of it for. I can see some of the graphs, and that would be interesting, but I, I've I've never tried it. I've never used it. Yeah, I think it's more helpful when you are like it when it's your local project. It's not a huge deal, um, but oh yeah, here we go. Yeah, ungit is is the one I was thinking of, and this is pretty handy too because you don't have to install. Like uh, you can just run it on a server if you need to, or run it on your build system and then go talk to it. Um, I think it's super helpful though if you are coming onto like maybe you're coming onto a new team or a big project that you haven't worked on yourself and you're trying to understand mm-hmm. some of the history and what's the deal with this branch what is this branch it's just sitting way over here has it been neglected or is it actually up to date when was the last time it was based off master all those kinds of stuff sometimes a GUI can help you just cut down on the clutter yeah you'll have to try and uh, see what see what you think yeah I'm looking at the branches I see I see there is, of right. course, also the uh, Git K, like the TK-based GUI that comes with Git, or at least is sometimes packaged with Git, which you can run from the command line. And it's not a great interface, uh, but sometimes it's enough to get the job done. And Git Kraken? Ha, 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 ha. <laughs> yeah, that one, that one is pretty nice. I have not used it extensively, but I've had a number of coworkers who've used it for, for a number of things, and they seem to like it a lot. So, yeah, worth checking out anyway. Hmm. Yeah. Thank you. Well, hopefully this helps everyone with their Git adventures and misadventures, maybe fewer mm. of those. One place that you might be using Git is at our last sponsor this evening, which is DigitalOcean. What is DigitalOcean? Well, it's cloud computing designed for developers. See, that's where the whole Git things come in. Git, uh, DigitalOcean and Git make it super simple to get started with whatever your next project is, whether that's a new startup or you just want to host, you know, you want to, you're like, Dan, you want to host some, some email, you want to, you want to run any kind of service, you want to start packaging stuff for the FreeBSD community. It doesn't matter. Go head over to DigitalOcean.com. We've got a promo code, SnapOcean, all one word, SnapOcean. That's going to get you a $10 discount once you sign up. What are you, what are you going to get for that? Well, well, just head on over to their pricing page and you'll see what I'm talking about. So, They've got these things called droplets. What's a droplet? A droplet is a virtual machine. It's in the cloud. It's got incredible transit. It's got SSDs connected to it. And it spins up in like 55 seconds, sometimes less if you're really good at it. You know, practice up now. Practice up, everyone. Let us know about your fastest times. That's what's so great about it. You don't have complicated charts with a thousand different types of versions and you get really confused about which one you need and what's the pricing and have to go find some external calculator made by someone else to actually try to reasonably estimate how much you might spend this month. No, they have simple, transparent pricing. It's way easier. So what are you, you going to get? Well, prices, they start at just $5 a month. And this $5 rig, it's really no slouch, right? They've got 512 MB of memory, one CPU, 20 gigs of SSD diskettes, all SSD at DigitalOcean. They were one of the first to jump on the SSD bandwagon, and they just haven't looked back because, especially when you want to spin up a whole bunch of these, you need to do quick updates, you want to get your servers up and running. SSDs are just the way to go. Don't wait on that spinning rust. Don't risk your data on it. Use SSDs, use DigitalOcean. Plus, you get one terabyte of transfer. And this isn't this isn't your grandmother's transfer. Nothing against your grandmother. She's a lovely woman. But... 
She doesn't have the best internet connection. DigitalOcean does. They've got great transit and peering relationships. A lot of times when I need to talk to something that's kind of farther away, if my ISP doesn't have a great connection, I'll use DigitalOcean as a proxy just because I know they always have a great connection. And if the data center near you for some reason doesn't, they've got data centers all over the world. So find one that works. Go, go cache your data. Go distribute things. It's super simple. And they've got a bunch of free stuff that can help you build your thing. So like, if you have two droplets in the same data center, private networking between them, you're not going to get charged for that bandwidth. They've got attachable block storage. So you realize you really love this FreeBSD system you build up on DigitalOcean. Yeah, that's right. They got FreeBSD and Linux and a whole bunch of other things. Boom, attach some block storage. Now you've got a big ZFS pool on there and your system, does, you don't have to rebuild, you don't have to do anything. It makes it super simple to scale when you need to and with fair, reasonable prices. They've also got great stuff like monitoring. So they've got their own daemon you can install on a handy dashboard. They've got alerts configurable. So if you're already using AP DigitalOcean, you can install some of their great apps. They've got you know, like an Android app and you can get push notifications about your monitoring alerts. It's all really handy. Plus cloud firewalls. Say what? Yeah, cloud firewalls. Don't configure IP tables. I mean, sure, you still can. But if you don't want to, DigitalOcean can handle that firewalling for you with their network appliances. They've also got load balancers. And they've just introduced object storage. Say what? Yeah, maybe you've used some competitors like S3 and, and, and similar. Well, DigitalOcean's got, got theirs too. And in the typical DigitalOcean spin, it's way simpler, way prettier, and just a whole lot more fun to use. So don't waste any more time. Go spin up a new system. With that $10 discount, you're going to get like two months for free, basically, if you choose that $5 a month plan. So what are, you, what are you risking? Nothing. Go install Ubuntu. Go play with the latest Ubuntu release. Maybe you listened to last week's containers episode and you really want to get started. Install Docker up on DigitalOcean. Start pulling down Docker images. Start making some services. You're going to have a ton of fun. And thank you to DigitalOcean for letting all this stuff happen and for sponsoring the TechStamp program. And that brings us to today's feedback, the time in the show where we get to hear from you, our wonderful audience. I know we always have a lot of fun, and we'll get right to it, but first, we've got some show announcements today, in particular from that handsome guy right next to me. Dan, what do you got, what do you got for us? Well, it's uh, th this has been uh, sort of in the works for a while, but um, I'm leaving the show. The, th this isn't the last show. We'll do our last show next week. Yep. Please stay tuned um, for but, that. But coming uh, December, uh, I won't be in the show anymore. Now, there's just so many things that I want to do that I, I want to spend more time doing those things. Like I enjoy doing the show, but and we it, enjoy it, having you. Don't get uh, don't. Thank you. Yeah. Yeah, and I'm just getting very. It, it's getting very frustrating that there's these things that I want to get done and I can't can't do them and so I've just decided that I'm not going to do the show anymore I got to do these other things yeah. and concentrate on them so there's only so it, much one man can do even a man as wonderful as yourself and uh, thank you, know, you thank you I know that you. feeling when you you know you're pulled in too many directions you don't have enough time for the things and and they're important things and you don't want to give them any less than your best and so sometimes it is yeah. you just you know you just have to do less things and you wind up not doing any of them well if if you stay yes. committed to all of them. So I've decided I'm going to do this other stuff. So it's not going it, it's not going to be the end of the show. Yes, don't it wasn't worry. The end of the it wasn't the end of the show in the last 
Change Tech Snap occurred. is a powerful beast. You really just can't kill it that easily. So as it Dan will said, proceed. we'll have one more Dan and Wes episode coming up next week. So do come join us live. That'll be on the calendar. Uh, we look forward to it. It should be yes. should be a great time. And then after that, starting in December, uh, Chris will be joining back on the show. We'll be doing some Tech Snap experimentation. So please give us your feedback. Let us know what you think. Let us know what you'd like to see in upcoming future Tech Snap. Now is going to be a great time to sort of explore and find what the audience wants for TechSnap, what we want, what the you know the best position for TechSnap can be. I'm really mm-hmm. excited about it. I'm really sad to see you go, Dan, but you've given Thank this you. show a lot. I think it's you know it's it's helped figure things out in this TechSnap, the new age, and there's more of that to come. So uh, thank you. Yeah, everyone, come join us for the last episode. Give us your feedback. We'll you know that, that'll be a great time for it. Let us know what you want to see in the future. But for now, we've got an episode to finish. So I guess let's just jump right back on. First we up, we've got some feedback from our friend Blackflow asking about shared sysv namespaces. But actually, this is just a correction or a little bit of it a, is. of an advice, it, I guess. It, it is. I, I remember saying this in the last show. I remember saying that they eventually fixed it with recent versions of Postgres. I think that's what I said, based on what uh, Blackflow is saying here. There, there is an issue with um, uh, FreeBSD and Postgres with system v shared memory, such that it was possible for for the same process for the same Postgres instance to see the RAM, the shared memory used by other processes, and so that was a security issue. Um, but with FreeBSD 11, they've changed the way that System V IPC namespace is done, and so you don't have to worry about it. I think it's that they include the process ID in there or the UID. Or maybe so it's like a longer, I, more specified tuple in in one sense. Yeah, yeah. So you don't have to worry if you if you have multiple instances of Postgres running on the same machine. It'll just work. They can all use the same UID. Okay, nice. That's awesome. Yeah, I know that's those are sometimes you have those things in projects where it's like yes, it was like that at one time, but unless like you're, it's hard for newbies sometimes to get to you know you see these old posts warning you about it and you're like well what's the current state and sometimes that's only specified in like a manual page somewhere in the depth so it's nice to have that called out like modern FreeBSD mm-hmm, mm-hmm. not a problem I know on Linux too it took a while to get the Sys5 IPC uh, namespaced properly yeah. and C grouped and everything yeah. like that so it's kind of the same boat on on either side now I I do remember this being fixed just completely forgot about it. <laughs> yeah. You know, and it's one of those things that not not a lot of programs use these days. If you use Sys5 IP, IPC, uh, if you if you go watch that Brian Cantrell talk we talked about, he goes at length about why it's terrible and stupid and why it took some, some time for this to happen. But uh, that's for another time because we've got more feedback. One more letter today. And that's our friend Samir asking about jails and containers. Dan and Wes, thanks again for another great episode this week, though I think this is one I may have to listen to again. As a relative Unix newcomer, I still don't understand the difference between containers, such as Docker and Jails, versus virtual machines, such as VMware, VirtualBox, and Beehive. For someone who is unfamiliar with concepts such as namespaces, Chirrut, or cgroups, when would I use a container over a virtual machine, or vice versa? Keep up the great work, Samir. Thank you, Samir, and I just want to say thank you to Black Black. Black flow again for that that's always handy to have corrections if you have any tips for jail users Mm. anything else Mm. please keep writing in because that's wonderful all right back to the the thing at hand here i'll let you take a stab at it first this is kind of a complicated question not only the differences uh that part's a little easier to get to although those lines are more blurred now than ever but also just the use cases because that may that may vary a bit by field but uh i'll let you go 
If you want to try an operating system, say FreeBSD or CentOS or pick your OS, mm -hmm. then what you want to do is you want to install a virtual machine. That's what you want to do. So you would use something like VMware and create a virtual machine in there. Or you could create a virtual machine under Beehive if it's supported or VirtualBox. So th that's when you do that. But if you want to try something in isolation, say you want to try it on application, that's when something like Docker or Jails may be more, more suited to what you're doing. Um, so you've already made your choice of OS, then you probably want to use something like Docker or Jails. But if you haven't made your choice of OS, you want to use a VM. Yeah, well, that's an interesting way to look at it, yeah. Um, yeah. From my perspective, I would say that uh, like the, the, the main difference is that a, a container or a jail is something that, that resides or is made up of utilities that exist in the kernel you're running. So you booted FreeBSD, mm -hmm. you booted Linux. These are utilities that let you, as Dan said, constrain or contain applications, but it's all within that one same mm -hmm. OS. Mm -hmm. A virtual machine is a process running in your operating system, but it's actually, not all the time, there are a lot of caveats here, but it's actually emulating hardware for a PC. It's like you have a virtual mm -hmm. machine mm -hmm. inside of your machine. Now, these days, CPU instructions have been accelerated. They've got pass-through type things so that you don't feel the cost. But originally, you basically emulated all, you know, you emulated a little CPU in there. And, and and so that's the way to think about it. You have this whole stack. You still have to deal, deal with things like formatting disks, setting up bootloaders, all that normal stuff. There are advantages. Uh, a lot of times the security can be better, or at least there are different security considerations. Um, there's also been, particularly on the Linux side, a lot of man hours poured into, say, Zen or KVM. And it gives you some advantages that, like, if you do need to run a different operating system, that's the only way to do it. It also, there are some things, at least in Linux, that are not namespaced yet, or you can't tune per container. So that's an, another area where virtual machines come into play because you have your own kernel that you can then customize. Containers are also sometimes used now, particularly in, like, big cloud deployments, because they're, they're usually faster to spin up. They're a little more um, dynamic. And you can generally get more density if you're running a bunch of containers versus virtual machines as there's less overhead. Now, there are things like Intel's clear containers come to mind. I think Microsoft has some similar things on the Windows side that are basically the minimum set of virtual machine things that boot really minimal things with, the, with as, as minimal overhead and emulation as possible. Uh, that's where the line gets to start, starts to get a little, little gray and blurry. But by and large, a container is like in OS. It's, it's really like containing applications, presenting them a different view. And a virtual machine is a full virtualized computer running on your computer. Did I, did yep. I get that about right there, Dan? Yeah, I, I, I agree. Like I had a Windows NT box sitting around. Yep. And what I did is imported that into VMware. And that box now sits in the, in the basement. I kept it around just because I kept it around. But if I want to use it, I, I fire up Windows uh, uh, VMware and then run Windows from within there. I wonder if it's still running on this machine, actually. Oh. But yeah, that that... I hope that helps. Yeah, definitely. Uh, let get, us know. If is, you it, have any, is it worse than that? <laughs> hopefully not, right? That's all we can hope anytime we do one of these episodes. Um, so, Samir, you have to let us know. And if you have any more specifics about like what exactly some of your workloads or things you want to play with, virtual machines mm -hmm. are really easy to get started with, especially with things like VirtualBox or if you have a VMware installation. But these days, containers are tool, too. Dan laid out some great tools for jails. Docker is a pretty easy to get started with ecosystem. So probably the best way to learn more is to try both and see for yourself some of the differences in 
in the workflows and what you're able to do. So uh, good luck and thank you very much for the feedback. That does it for today's round of feedback. Please do send us feedback and go to jupiterbroadcasting.com slash contact or techsnap.reddit.com. You can also find us both on Twitter. Stay tuned. We'll have the roundup in just a moment. And that brings us to the final segment of today's show. That's right. It's time for the roundup. These stories weren't quite important enough for the main segment, but we'd like to share you share them with you nevertheless. So let's get started. That's how this roundup works. Sounds like Startcom is getting out of the certificate business. What's going on? Well, most of you will have known Startcom for providing free SSL certificates. Right. These were in the dark I, days before Let's uh, Encrypt. Yeah. And I heavily use them. I use them for a lot of my own uh, domains, and they sort of got sort of, are you sure you're not using these for commercial purposes? And I said, no, no, no. I sure am PG, not. PGCon and BSD can. I bought Rapid SSL Search or something like that. But for all the other domains, I use start.com, start.com. And um, it got to the point where I had to change some copyrights on websites and stuff. No, it's definitely me. It's not that other company that I used to run ages ago, but it's me. Anyway, um, I use them for certificates all the time. And there's just been some issues happen over the years. And there's a link in the show notes to one of the things about uh, the background of how this got started. Um, But just basically... They've lost the trust of the Mozilla group. And once you lose that trust, you're basically, you're, you're out of the play group. You're not allowed back in. Or to get back in, you're going to have to do a lot of really special stuff. But it's not easy to incur the wrath of the Mozilla group. No, am I, no it's am not. I do, so, um, basically, they've decided that because of what's happened, we're we're going to not um, be involved in the certificate business. I don't know if start.com is actually winding up, but they said basically they're still going to contribute to the community and and look at security research, but they're not going to be involved in the SSL um, business. Looks like their their certificate revocation list and other things will continue, but starting January 1st, they're going to stop issuing certificates. Yeah. Now, I... Thinking about this after I read it, I, I wouldn't be surprised if the popularity of Let's Encrypt has also affected this, because not only did they provide free certificates, but they also had an income stream fr- from groups, that, from people who wanted to get, um, say, as an individual certified so that you could get certificates which were longer than the norm, and there's a little bit of money coming in with that. But now that you can get certificates at very low overhead from Let's Encrypt. I'm sure that has played into it as well. Um, but for the most part, the really big issue is is not being listed by the Mozilla group anymore. Yeah, yeah, exactly. That's a huge one. Um, so uh, better, better time than ever. Go check out Let's Encrypt. Go look at some of these yes. al- the alternatives available to you yes. and st- stop using them. Okay, so let's move right along. Uh, Once again, we're back in this territory. Massive U.S. military social media spying archive left wide open 
in AWS S3 buckets. When will it end, Dan? When will it end? Well, what, what I found interesting is that the names that they're using uh, for these buckets were CENTCOM Backup, CENTCOM Archive, and PACCOM Archive. And all of these are, are names that are familiar to me from my reading of uh, uh, Tom Clancy novels. Um, if you've never read anything by Tom Clancy, I recommend reading some of his original works. Not not the collaborative works, but the works just with his name on it. Um, but CENTCOM is the abbreviation for the U.S. Central Command, which controls Army, Navy, Air Force, Marines, and Special Ops in the Middle East, North Africa, and Central Asia. So only and a little Pat, important there. Not, you know, it's not, not, not trivial. PATCOM is the name for U.S. Pacific Command covering the rest of Southern Asia, China, and Australasia. That's not Australia, but Australasia. So Vickery uh, told the register today, which was some time ago, he stumbled across them by accident while running a scan for the word COM in publicly accessible S3 buckets. After his refined search, CENTCOM popped up. And at first he thought it was related to Chinese multinational Tencent, but quickly realized it was U.S. military of astounding size. It was like 400K. One of the buckets contained 1.8 billion social media posts automatically fetched over the past eight years, right up until today. So it covers postings made in in, in Central Asia. Uh, however, some of the materials taken from comments made by American citizens he had seen. So they're not really... It, it's interesting. So not, none of this is a big secret. It's just interesting that it was found to be completely open. Whether that was an intentional intentional or not, I don't know, but I have to think that someone dropped the ball and left it completely wide open. Yeah, that's what it seems like. I also find it interesting because it's um it's interesting how many like other companies and or, you know, the military kind of do what a lot of people do these days when you have some data and you don't know what to do with it, which is stick it in S3. Which, which is all fine and dandy. You're willing to pay for the space yep. and the transit. You just yep. got to make sure that you've set up things properly. You're using, you know, using VPCs. You've got secure defaults. You, and more than ever, as you see, like people are doing scans of publicly accessible, of mm. you know, things. So you should be doing similar things. You should be trying to develop an awareness of what you have open and what is your attack surface, particularly for cloud services that you have less control over. <clears throat> yes. Okay, so yes. something more exciting and interesting from the technicals perspective up next, mm -hmm. ZFS from a MySQL perspective. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Now, this is Percona. Is that how they pronounce yeah, your name? I think so. Percona, yeah. So they start off with, since the purpose of a database system is to store data, there's a close, close relationship with the file system. As MySQL consultants, we always look at the file systems for maximum performance tuning opportunities. Sorry, for performance tuning opportunities. So the common choices they normally look at are XFS and EXT4 on Linux. But they're saying there's pros and cons to that, but ZFS is becoming much more prevalent on, on the Linux platform. And they have an interesting uh, graph here where they talk about code base. So they're saying in terms of code base, they're saying that EXT4 was 18.5 person years, 
XFS was 17 person years and ZFS was 77 person years. So it's nearly four times the complexity of the of XSS, XFS and just in terms of number of people years. So it's just interesting that they've decided to do it that way, to, to, to point it out. But what they're getting at is the potential for bugs. And I agree, yeah, there's a lot of complexity there. Um, yeah, it's one of those upsides and downsides where it's definitely more complex and there may be situations where you don't yes. need it or it doesn't make sense. Yes. But it also means there's been years of, of engineering poured into it. And if you uh, mm-hmm. can or are able to take, take advantage of those features, they're there. Yeah. So one of the things they do, they go through the ZFS features and I say, why does ZFS need such a large code base? And then... They they go they mention that in Linux it basically basically replaces MD which is software grade LVM the volume manager and the file system so it's all of those three components together and then they go through one two three four five a whole list of things that come with it and then they say okay well this is our first post about ZFS but stay tuned for more because they're going to go through a lot more stuff here and it should be interesting to see what they say. Um, and when I look through here, I see a lot of familiar names. Uh, mostly, um, I see some from the from the Bacula group as well. I, I see some people that are posting here in the comments that I recognize from the Bacula project. So it should be interesting to see what they have to say. Yeah, definitely. And I know you know Percona is pretty big in the in the database space, both tuning and they have their own distribution of MySQL that they that they make available for proprietary use. Uh, so they're certainly interested in this. And I think you're right. Like especially with you know CFS on Linux has come a long way, especially in the last couple of years. In particular, Ubuntu now ships a pre-compiled kernel module that you can just apt get install. Um, I know I'm already looking at using it for more things in official capacities just because of that. There's now you know better upstream support. It's been stable for a long mm-hmm. time. And copy on write is just anytime you need you know snapshots, being able to like reason about what's going on, you just you get so much more. It goes from being this you know update everything in place and uh, make mm-hmm. sure you had backups, file system mm-hmm. to a file system. You can actually mm-hmm. reason about and build up this big immutable log of changes and actually work mm-hmm. with, which is you know frequently, especially when you're doing things in production, being able to roll back is so mm-hmm. handy. And mm-hmm. I think there's a I think there's a lot of fear for people. You know, people on the on the BSD, the Solaris side of things, they've kind of been, you know, they obviously databases already run on ZFS, but I think there is some like people on Linux aren't quite sure. They don't know what the deal with this is. So it's nice to see some database experts going into it, talking about some of the pros and cons. It might not be right for your workload, but I think for a lot of, for a lot of workloads, it might make sense. So time to play with it, I think. Okay. So moving yes. right along, cause there's going to be more to come from that one. I'm sure. Yes. Over at the Prometheus project announcing, Prometheus 2.0. Now, I'm not using Prometheus, but I've been paying attention to it for a while. And I'm just, there's, I haven't been able to get to it or even to play with it. Um, but it, it's almost like it's taken Grafana and something else and combined them. And allegedly, it's easier to use than all those other tools put together. Now, I may be talking wrong and I may <laughs> be mentioning the wrong tools and products, but that's the impression that I got. Yeah, so like where you might um, currently 
have something where you like collect some metrics from some hosts, you send it over to Graphite or a similar collection, and then write Nagios scripts that go scrape those metrics and maybe alert on things for you. Prometheus has this at its at its heart as like metrics and structured data. It comes out of it's inspired by Google's Borgmon. Borg is their mm-hmm. like infrastructure system, and Borgmon is the system they built internally to monitor it. And a lot of the the way Prometheus works is it really wants you to to expose metrics from your application. So your your applications in a white box fashion expose metrics about what they're doing: HTTP requests, client requests served, all those sorts of things. And then usually they have some sort of page that you run that then Prometheus will go and you tell it about all your hosts that you want it to monitor. It'll scrape them for those metrics and then it builds this in memory and now they have some better, one of the bigger things about Prometheus 2 is they've got a new storage uh, on-disk storage format that's a lot more efficient, so that's great. Um, but then it lets you write smart queries. So like one of the one of the problems with Nagios in particular is it's hard to write queries that are aware of each other. You can have two checks, but unless you go back and talk to the Nagios API, it can be difficult to, to you know have those cascade uh, properly, whereas Prometheus really encourages you to build rich alerts that can query all sorts of metrics in one go so that you have a lot of control over exactly what's happening. Uh, it may not work for you, but and it doesn't work in every situation. It's still pretty new, but it's seen a lot of active development. It's fairly tightly coupled with the Kubernetes project in that it's also part of the Cloud Native Foundation now, I believe. Um, and those two projects get a lot of use together, uh, especially in environments where you want Prometheus plays well, where you ha- you can have like your cloud system tell Prometheus about all the hosts that it needs, and it can take those in and out as those get destroyed or rebuilt. And then Prometheus knows which host to go scrape, and then you can write smart alerts that won't, you know, won't set off wake you up at two in the morning just because your load balancer yeah. auto scaled on you or something stupid like that. So, it may not be the right technology. There's a lot of modern technology, especially these days, but it's a project to watch. What um. What's the tool that they use on on the server to collect the data? Do you know? Uh, the the main one's called Node Exporter. Um, so rather than being a, there's a lot of monitoring clients that are push based, and so you kind of specify a server and then it sends metrics. Uh, yeah. Prometheus does have a push gateway, but they go by the pull model, and so they have they basically you write in and they have a lot of client libraries you can use to instrument and then it basically runs a separate process http server that exposes all these stats so node exporter you can run and that'll expose like have a little rest client thing that exposes a whole bunch of stats they have other ones that can scrape like the nginx status page or other hmm. similar properties they have a whole bunch of them um, we can i'll find a link to it on their page and we can put that in the show notes it's interesting thank yeah. you mm-hmm Okay, so we have one more roundup item this week, and maybe yes. it'll be fun. The three-minute SQL indexing quiz that 60% fail. It sounds almost yes. like clickbait, but it's not. Yes, yes. Well, full disclosure, uh, the author here has spoken at one of the conferences that I run. Oh. Um, now, I took this test, and I got four out of five. And four out of five is a passing Four to five is the minimum pass. Three out of five is fail, according to what he says. And it was just interesting to go th- go through and find the different questions. I take I- issue with the question that I failed because the question was <laughs> it'll it'll run just basically as the same. And yeah, that's what I thought it would do. But we take issue with what basically the same means. But that's all. Um, take take the quiz if you're using. Uh, a, a database, and you think you know how um, index tuning works, have a look. You may be surprised. 
Yeah, after you've taken the quiz, he's also got a, a link to follow, and they've got a whole. He's got a whole bunch of a, the results of the quiz and some discussion about what the answers are and mm-hmm. how you should understand it. So take the quiz first. Obviously, you don't want to. Yes. No want to cheat here, but uh, it should be really and interesting. You you get to choose your database too. Yeah, that that's handy. Church of MySQL, Oracle, Postgres, even SQLite's like so on there, it, which is great. Yes. Well, yes. Um, also, I had not seen this site before, but it looks really <laughs> handy because I know, like, I mean, databases are so important, uh, but a lot of developers have, you know all kinds of levels of familiarity. Maybe you used it a little bit. If you're a new developer, maybe you grew up on NoSQL databases and you're like, what's all this relational stuff? Or you're an expert who's been doing it a long time. But I know a lot of people who like are struggling. They're migrating from Oracle to Postgres or similar. And so I think this is, this is it seems like it's going to be a great reference if you're just trying to bone up on your database skills and understand how to get the most performance out of your application. Yes. Uh, excellent. All right. Well, also... Give us some feedback. Let us know how you guys do on the quiz. Uh, if, you've, if you score particularly well, and if you beat Dan's score, you'll really have to write in and let us know. That's it for today's episode of the TechSnap program. Thank you very much for joining us. Please come join us next week uh, for the final Wes and Dan episode. It should be a lot of fun. Yes. If you want to see yes. more TechSnap, jupiterbroadcasting.com. There's an archive there of this show, the past incarnation of this show, and a whole bunch of other shows like User Error, which uh, go watch the next episode of User Error. There, Chris and I will be discussing uh, more things about the TechSnap changes and what might be in store for the TechSnap program. So if you're curious, there's ways to find out there. And make sure to check out our sister show, BSD Now. You can also reach out to us. There's a contact page there as well as a calendar that lets you know when we're going to be doing this here show. You can watch the live stream there. You can join the IRC room, all kinds of fun stuff. Plus, there's techsnap.reddit.com. There's also a Discord channel for TechSnap, and we're both on Twitter. I'm at Wes Payne. You're at TechSnap underscore Dan. Is there anywhere else you want to send people? Yes. They can also find me at DLangel, D, and then my last name. And you, you can find me. I'll, I'll, I'll add a link to my TechSnap Dan page, TechSnap Dan, uh, to my Twitter account, TechSnap Dan. I'll add a link there. Perfect. All right. Well, with that, uh, we're going to get out of here. Thank you very much for joining us, and we'll see you next week. Mm